This morning's scripture reading comes from a select passage from Esther chapter 4. Verse 5. Then Esther summoned Hatach, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hatach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy, and plead with him for her people. Hatach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is God's word. Throughout the course of Lent, uh, we've been looking at the book of Esther. And Esther is, uh, or was, an orphan girl during the time of the Jewish exile in Persia. And through a series of events, you know, the Queen of Persia was deposed, and so they held this huge universal pageant, the largest in the world, and Esther rose to become the queen. And she's this beautiful young woman who sleeps with the king, pleased the king, hid her identity as one of God's people. She was compliant. She kept up with social mores, social values during her time. Nevertheless, this poor orphan Jewish girl became queen of the most powerful empire to date. And so Esther is going to answer a very important question for all of us. What does it mean to be a Christian who has power and wealth in a society that does not share in the same values? What we're going to do is we're going to start by looking at the background of this text, and that's going to lead us to three points so first, I'm going to walk through chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. You have Mordecai, the cousin of Esther, and he's in sackcloth. And he's mourning. He's, he's going throughout the city, and he's mourning, and he's weeping. And he gets to the king's gate. This is where the king and the cabinet, his cabinet, reside. You couldn't enter the king's gate looking dressed in sackcloth because it's going to make the capital, Susa, it's going to make the capital of Susa, uh, it's going to make it look broken and weak and, and forlorn. And so you couldn't enter in there because that's where the movers, that's where the shakers lived. 
Esther, this is the pinnacle of dominant culture. You have to understand this, that in this time, in this era, this is the pinnacle of the dominant culture in the world today, the center of power. This is where the movers and shakers lived. Esther was queen of this empire. She made it to the top, and that's why Mordecai was there. Mordecai was there trying to get her attention in sackcloth, weeping, mourning, and that's what you see in verse 4. Now, Throughout the series, uh, uh, throughout the series, of, uh, you see this conversation in this passage. These, the series of asynchronous messages that take place from verses 4 through 16. Kind of like email. Through messengers or a series of messengers, Esther and Mordecai start to dialogue with each other. And the message ultimately is in verse 8. Basically what Mordecai is saying to Esther is this. You were there. You're in the capital. You made it to the top. You are with the king. You are at the center, and we need you. We need your help. Why does he do that? Verse 4 to 8, he explains that powerful, evil forces have aligned in the empire, the Persian empire, and they've aligned to destroy Mordecai and all the Jews in the land. They've manipulated the king. Uh, They made a decree that the Jews were corrosive to the empire, and he literally shows this man the decree, and it basically says on a certain day at the end of the year, the Jews will be destroyed and their wealth will be plundered. It was really a conspiracy for systematic, systemic genocide, ordered straight from the top on down. Now, you usually wore sackcloth during the time of disaster, after a disaster, but here Mordecai and the Jews, from verse 3 and on, Mordecai and the Jews, the entire subculture of the Jews they're all in sackcloth, and they're mourning, and they're praying. Now, you got to think about the contrast here. Chapters 1 to 2, you had two feasts. Now there's fasting. Before there was celebration. Now there's weeping and mourning. Before there was luxury and cosmetics and treatments. Now there's sackcloth. Mordecai tells Esther, because of where you are, you can use your power. You can use your influence. You can use your wealth. You can use your social and financial capital to bring about great change in your people. That's pretty much the background. That's the first eight verses, really. And we're going to learn from this passage three things. First is Esther's response to that. Second is Mordecai's two subsequent responses to Esther. And lastly, Esther's final response. So you've got Esther's response, Mordecai's two subsequent responses, and then Esther's final response. Okay, that's three points. First, we got Esther's response. Verse 11, she says this, if I go to the king without being invited by the king, it's literally a punishable capital offense. I could be, I'm risking my life. I could be killed for this. Now, what she's really saying is this, I got here because the last queen was too bold. The last queen was too defiant. The last queen was was strong. And and now you're asking me to do that. And you're asking me to risk everything for that. In fact, when she says, I've not gone to see the king in 30 days, it's not like the king sleeps alone. The king is always sleeping with somebody. What she's saying is it means the king hasn't called her in 30 days. They've been married about five years now. So she's saying, maybe the king has grown tired of me. Maybe the king has, has gotten bored of me. 
And Persian law is very, very strict regarding the king's privacy, regarding the king's protection. And so you can't just walk into the throne room uninvited and make demands. Only seven people were allowed to ever summon the king or, or enter in without being summoned by the king. And Esther was not one of those seven people. The queen was definitely not one of those seven people. She could be put to death. And if Esther makes this appeal... What's going to happen is that means that she has to reveal herself, reveal her identity. That means she's kind of been lying to the king. She's been hiding this information from the king. The king could lose trust in her. His reaction already, we've seen his reactions to things, very, very poor. The punishment could be incredibly severe. In fact, in chapter 2, in verse 19 in chapter 2, after Esther becomes queen, the author the narrator makes it a point to say that Xerxes gathered the young women, the young virgin women, a second time. Libby Groves, she's a Hebrew professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, she argues this. She says that the gathering of, this, of these young virgin women, it's the author's way of letting us know that even though Esther has risen to queen, her position was really tenuous at best. What's the message here? What's the, what's the king's message to Esther? Don't mess with the king. Don't ever rock the boat. Don't ever defy social norms. She says, if I go in without being called, maybe I won't get that golden scepter because he's forgotten about me or he's bored of me, he's tired of me. I could lose everything, and this is our struggle. Commentators, you know, Leland Riken, famous commentator, a scholar, a commentator, he points out that Esther is the only person in this entire book that's got two names. She's got a Persian name, She's got a Jewish name, a Hebrew name. There's clearly an identity crisis here. On one hand, we live very worldly lives. On the other hand, we're called by God. How are we going to live? That's us. Esther's first response reveals the tension between living with two names. The tension in living with two names, a worldly name and one that that represents the call of God. Mordecai says, you are here. You made it. You're a rising star. You're beautiful. Everyone loves you. The king loves you. You can do something about this. Now think about this. If you're in the city, you're working, you're educated, you're in the king's gate. Do you get that? You're in the palace. Now some of you are saying, well, not yet. I'm I'm trying to get there. Not me, not yet. Do you get it? Then you're like Esther. Then you're like Esther. You're saying, I don't have enough yet. I can still get in trouble. I don't have enough clout to take these kind of risks. Think about it. Most people here are in position to work on their careers, work on their aspirations. They have mobility. They can move up. They can rise. And so you're using your gifts and your talent. You have some amount of social capital. You have some amount of intellectual and financial capital. And you're using these things to get ahead. You're inside the king's gate. That's where you are. You're inside. You're working for Xerxes. Why do people come to Philadelphia today? It's because recently, as of late, as of the past couple years, it's become hip to live in Philadelphia. Lots of press. The image of the city has improved greatly. People come to have fun. People come to get a career. People come to to get a spouse, to make connections, to build. All the while, there are people outside without privilege, without education, without the connections, and they're praying, and they're mourning, and they're weeping. Now, some of us were saying here, but I barely got here. I'm not even sure if I'm going to make it here. You're asking me to risk everything for this? I have a seminary professor, Bill Crispin. He's actually been here to Metro 
at least a few times. And uh, he one, one time in class, he called me out uh, in front of my entire class. He, he asked me to take a huge risk. I, I used to run, I still run a, a youth camp in the summertime. And uh, because of my vacation schedule, I could only take one week at a time. And so I would really just be there for one week and leave the, my staff to basically take care of the other week. And he said, you know what I want you to do this year? I want you to ask for two and a half weeks off because you need some time to recover after two weeks of being with children and youth. He says, I, I need you to take two and a half weeks off. And the thing is, I don't want you to just uh, ask for it. I want you to tell them you're taking it. And I said, well, what if they don't give it to me? He says, then I want you to leave. That's <laughs> what so he said to me. I said, are you crazy? Uh, and and I, I kind of balked, and he, he called me out, and he said, Donnie, who gave you your job? Did you earn that job? Who gave you your job? Just broke me. And he said, why did he give you your job? It's because of the call. Following the call, that's how you live a big life. That's Esther's struggle. Esther's first response represents her struggle. Now, Mordecai responds with two statements. He really has two responses. The first thing he says is, verses 13 to 14, he says, if you don't risk losing what you have, then you're definitely going to lose everything. Basically, what he's saying is, Esther, don't you get it? Uh, No one's going to escape what's about to happen. This man that's out to get us, no one's going to escape this man. he, He wants every one of our people dead. Don't think that because you're in the king's house, you alone are going to escape. Because if you remain silent this time, yes, relief and deliverance may come to you, but relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, and you and your family will ultimately perish. Now, he's saying this. If you risk losing what you have, you just might lose everything. It's possible. You could lose everything. But if you don't risk losing what you have, if you don't risk losing everything you have, you absolutely will lose yourself and everything that comes with you. And here's how it happens. Either you're going to be discovered if the Jews are killed. The Jews are killed, they're going to find out you're a Hebrew. They're going to kill you too. But if you survive, they're going to find out that you could have helped. Our people will find out you could have helped. And they're going to look at you like a traitor. You're going to lose your life that way. Now, that's incredibly harsh. Family, family can speak to each other that way. It's incredibly harsh. Really what Mordecai is saying is, look at the clout you have. Look at your credentials. Look at your connections. Look at your wealth. You have a lot of all these things. You have the best chance. You are in the best position to help. So instead of seeing your wealth and seeing your power just as a way to further yourself, further your career, see it as a service to people who are actually broken who can't speak for themselves. And unless you see it that way, you just might escape, but you're already dead. You've already lost yourself. You're already living out your death sentence. If you abandon the call, the palace has become your prison. If you abandon the call, the king's gate has already devoured you. And if you're not willing to risk your life, one day it's going to crumble under you and it's going to corrode you and you will lose yourself forever. I heard this story about a couple, highly educated couple, and they ultimately wanted to leave their careers, so they basically wanted the parents' blessings. So they went to their parents, and they said, we're going to leave our careers. I understand we, it took us a lot to get to where we are. We want to leave our careers, and we want to go and live lives as missionaries. Now, the parents said, you know, you guys are young. You guys are newly married. Do you really want to do that? 
I mean, wouldn't it make more sense to kind of build a nest egg, build something for yourself, have a, build your career, save some money first, and then you can go. And one of the, pe- one of the uh, members of the couple, they, they said this, you know, we are living on a ball of rock, traveling at a speed of 67,000 miles per hour. And one day, it's going to stop. And the world is going to open up, and everything's going to fall through. Do you honestly think, mom and dad, that my career will save me then? What will save you then? What does that mean? In Mark chapter 10, there's a famous, famous story about a rich young ruler, a king, a king who comes to Jesus, and uh, he's got power, he's got wealth, he's got a great reputation, and he basically says, you know, what do I do to inherit eternal life? What do I do to inherit the kingdom? Now, there's an interesting thing about this man in this text. He's very wealthy. He's very powerful, clearly, because he's a rich young ruler. He's a king. And yet the author never mentions his name. We don't, the author intentionally leaves out his name. Why? It's because the author is really trying to show us that for this rich young ruler, his wealth, his youth, and his power is his name. That's who he is. That's how he defines himself. Jesus says, okay, well, what, what do you do? Obey the law. The man comes back and says, I have a great reputation. I've done all these things. So Jesus says, then I want you to go. There's one thing you lack. I want you to go. I want you to sell all your possessions. I want you to give it all the way to the poor, and then I want you to follow me. And the text says the man walked away sad. Actually, the word is grieved, like he lost his life. He walked away grieved. Why? Because he was a man of great wealth, because he was power, because of his money. For the rich young ruler, he's like Esther. Either I'm wealthy and I'm powerful, or I'm nothing. If you, it's so possible, you know, to root your identity in your career, in your position, in your privileges, in your wealth, that you're inside the king's gate. It's so possible to, to, be, to root your identity on the fact that you are inside the palace, inside the king's gate. You can say, I can wear these types of clothes. I have this kind of buying power. I live in this type of community, in this type of neighborhood. I have this kind of influence over people. You ever see Donnie Brasco? Famous movie, Oscar contender. Donnie Brasco, Al Pacino, he's an elder mobster trying to educate a younger mobster who's really undercover. It's actually based on a true story in New York City. And he basically says this. When he first meets him, he says, in all the five boroughs, in all the five boroughs I'm known, I'm known all over the world. Don't you get it? I have this kind of social capital. I have this kind of financial capital. Mordecai saying, when you start to say that about yourself, you're cooked. It's over. If money and security and comfort, that's how you know that you're okay, anything apart from God, if that's how you know I'm okay, then you're going to need to perform and you're going to need to work hard to maintain those things. And you know what's going to happen? Eventually, fear is going to set into your life and it's going to control your soul. It's going to corrode your soul. And so the fear of losing money, the fear of losing influence, the fear of losing power, it's going to grip you and it's going to shape you and it's going to control you. And it's why you're tempted to push people down if you feel threatened. If any of those things are threatened, you're going to feel tempted to push people down or you're going to attempt to step over people to get ahead because you can't lose that money, you can't lose that power, you can't lose control whatever it's going to take to get ahead 
after a while. It's, it's really why we're willing to put up with some indecencies in the office. Sometimes we take part in indecencies in the office to fit in. It really starts out with, first you say, well, I'm not going to really get caught up in that kind of stuff. I'm going to live right. I'm going to be the exception. And, and you know, I'm not going to compromise. But over time, it's, you know, well, it's, it's only this thing, right? Small things here, small things over there. Then it becomes after a while, but I need to do this because that's how you get to the next level. If I, if I don't do this, I can't get to the next level. I got, everybody does this. That's, that's the industry. That's, the career, that's how it works. You got to pay your dues. So you work crazy hours. You compromise your honesty. You have to win. You have to stay on top because that's what the career demands of you. Then you start becoming nasty. Then you start becoming ugly. Then you start to fight. Then you become angry. Then you start becoming bitter. You know what's happened? You've lost yourself. You sold out. You lost yourself. Over time, you become weaker. You stop giving. You say, oh, but those people, they never worked for any of this. They don't deserve this. You, you stop helping people. You become jaded. You say, well, what difference does one person with wealth or power make anyways? You start to justify after a while not living right. Mordecai is saying, if you're unwilling to risk your position, risk your power, it's already too late. If you don't start doing that now, you're never going to do it later. You're never going to do it later. It's already too late. You're already dead. You've already lost yourself. The second thing he says, he says, who knows? You know, he goes into this thing. He says, if, you haven't, if you're not willing to risk everything now, you're already dead. Who knows? But that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. An amazing, amazing thing that he says. He says, who knows that God has put you in this position right now for such a time as this. He's saying, how did you get here? You were brought here. You think you earned this? You were brought here. It's all by grace. You never earned your looks. You were born with your looks. You ever read Malcolm Gladwell, Outliers? Famous book, New York Times bestseller. There's a lot there, but one of the themes in Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers is this. Basically, there's a whole unit around this. He's basically saying most of the things that result in greatness are a result of things that are completely out of your control. Most of the things that result in your becoming great are the result of things that are completely out of your control. For instance, being born, he looks at Silicon Valley and how Silicon Valley started. He talks about Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. He says, really, if you think about it, if they weren't born in that era, at that year, somebody else would have been a Steve Jobs. Somebody else would have been a Bill Gates. If they weren't born in that area in Seattle or California, somebody else would have been a Steve Jobs. Somebody else would have been a Bill Gates. You understand that? Most of the things that make us great are really a result of things that are completely out of our control. Being born in a certain era, being born in a certain region, having a certain, Bill Gates was born, he had, he had privileged, uh, he was born into a privileged family. So he had access to things that common people didn't have access to. Opportunities that most people don't have access to. You never earn these things. Esther could have said, but you don't realize how hard I worked. But in reality, you worked with talents that you never earned. It's all sheer grace. And why? Mordecai says, maybe it's for this. Maybe you were born for this time. Maybe you were born for this opportunity. Maybe you were born for this purpose. You thought you were born to be queen. That's great. 
but maybe there's an even greater purpose than being queen. That clearly struck a nerve for Esther because as you get towards the end of this text that we just read, it begins to get Esther because she responds. And and how do you know this? How do you know this? Uh, There's my favorite, my favorite Broadway musical is Aida. And uh, Aida, without going into the details of the story, uh, the princess uh, in, this, in this musical, she's actually the anti-figure because she's so wrapped up in herself and her looks and, and, and having the privilege that she has. And she basically says this, she kind of midway through because she realizes that her fiancé is not very taken by her. Her fiancé isn't inspired by her. She, he, she says this, she says, I may leave a great impression as I race through a succession of the latest crazes, chase the newest fad, I feel better when beguiling, find that fashion keeps me smiling, but in my heart I know it's rather sad. That a life of great potential is dismissed, inconsequential, and only ever seen as being cute. So I'll flutter to deceive, oh no, you must believe that one day you're bound to find a stronger suit. She says, all my life, I valued wealth and power and looks, sex appeal, attracting other men, and I deceived and I manipulated them and I took joy in that, she says. But I realized that that I'm just deceiving people because on the inside I'm insecure and I'm empty on the inside. That's why I need so much on the outside. She says, maybe I just need she says, all my life I've been looking for worldly dresses. Maybe I need something stronger. Something stronger, a stronger suit. That's what she says. Up until this point, what do we see Esther? Pretty little Esther. Fearful, worldly, approval-seeking. Got there really because she was born incredibly beautiful. But her fears start to go away. She was one who never rocked the boat. Now what do you see? Verses 15 to 16, she's giving orders. For the first time, you see her getting up. She's starting to give orders. As the king and Haman, they're feasting, the Jews are fasting. Up until this point, right? Now, you know, Esther is passive. She was objectified. Now, she's the one in action. She's the subject. She's the primary voice. She starts to act. She starts to move. She's got courage. Leland Riken, famous commentator again, he says, it's through this traumatic ordeal that a beautiful woman with weak character is transformed into a person with heroic moral stature and political skill. All of a sudden, her political skills start to emerge. In other words, what Leonard Reichen, what he's saying here is, where is Esther's true potential? Where do we start to see her true potential? When she's living just as a queen, as a passive queen in the palace, with comfort and wealth, she really starts to reach her potential when she begins to risk her identity, when she puts her identity on the line, when she puts her life on the line, when she puts herself on the line, when she starts to recognize who she really is, why she is really there. The greatness came when she stopped trying to become great on her own and she starts to submit to the call of God. She starts to live a big life. This is really the first of a series of tremendous reversals. Esther is a book all about re- reversals. This is the first in a series of great reversals in this narrative. 
Before she says, I can lose everything. Mordecai can lose everything. Now she says, you do this, you do this. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. And if I perish, I perish. That's Esther's response to Mordecai. She's saying, my people are about to perish. I'm going to identify with them. That's how I'm going to connect with them. And when she does, she goes in front of the throne, a tremendously powerful throne, the most powerful throne in the world to date. No one else could do it. She does it like no one else could. And she risks the condemnation that the people were getting. She risks the condemnation that the people endured and eventually earns the favor of the king, something only she can do, and the favor that she earns transfers over to the people. An amazing thing, she identifies with them. She says, they are I. Let them have the favor that I receive. Let them have the favor that I deserve. By saying, if I perish, I perish. What she's saying is, yes, I agree with you. I can either die by the king or Haman, but I've done it because I've been called to do this, or I can die because I'm riding away in the, king, king, in the king's palace. If I perish, I perish. I now have my life back. I, I, can, I might live, I might die, but my life is not my own. I get it now. Where do, you get the, where do you get the courage for that? Where do you get the power for that? Where do you get that kind of courage, that kind of power? An amazing thing, Mordecai says, you know, Esther, if you don't do this, someone else will rise. Esther's the queen. But she started to see a glimpse of God's promise. She said, oh, you know, I, it's, it's been about me, it's been about Mordecai, it's been about Haman, but there is a God that is working in the background. And his promise has begun from the ancient times. And that promise remains faithful to this day. And either she could be the one that's in position to do this or God will choose someone else. But either way, God will be faithful. That's what Esther is saying. She saw a glimpse through Mordecai. She saw a glimpse of someone greater. She is a queen. She saw a glimpse of a king. She realized, I could just be a pointer to an ultimate Esther. The ultimate Esther. Esther is able to do what she did just on the glimpse of seeing God's grace, seeing God's promise, seeing God's faithfulness, and as a result, you know what happens? She takes responsibility for herself. Mordecai says, if it's not you, it's going to be somebody else. And with very little understanding, she saw just a shadow, just a glimpse. Esther acted with trust, and that gave her courage. We have so much more than a glimpse. We see everything in full. We see everything in full. What Esther does not know is that God, actually the true king, would actually come down himself and do what she's about to do. Esther saw a greater king, a greater plan. She caught just a glimpse of possibly a greater rescuer. Jesus Christ, he lived in the ultimate palace. He lived as the ultimate king. He had the ultimate favor. He had the ultimate beauty. He had the ultimate glory. He had the ultimate security. He had the ultimate comfort. But he left that beauty. But he left that favor. He left that glory. He left that security. He left that comfort. And no one begged him to do it. No one came to him and pleaded him for it. Hebrews chapter 12 says it was for his joy that he did it. Isaiah 53 said he was satisfied in doing it. You know what that means? When he saw his people dying, when he saw his people condemned, you, me, Jesus Christ said, I will leave the palace. 
because I identify with them. He chose to, he says, I will do it because I'm glad to do it. That's Jesus Christ. That's his love. Do you see the love of Christ? That's the true beauty of Christ. That's the true kingliness of Christ. He was glad to do it. Philippians chapter two said Jesus Christ had equality with the Father. We just read that in our call to worship. He didn't see it something to hold on to, something to be grasped. It didn't control him. That's what it means. It didn't control him. He wasn't there to one day topple over the king. It didn't corrupt him as a result. So what did he do? He had the humility and the strength to abandon it. He emptied himself. And he came down. You know what happened? Look, Esther, she was very troubled. You know she was troubled here. You see the struggle. You see the tension. We go through that tension all the time. Esther is troubled. In her defining moment, because of what might happen, she was troubled. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus Christ, knowing everything that's about to happen to him, says, I am troubled to the point of death. He died two deaths. He died, he, when he, knowing everything that's about to happen, he died there. He experienced it inwardly, and then he suffered on the cross, and he died alone. Esther called for a fast. He said, don't let anyone eat or drink. He, she called for a fast of the food and drink. Jesus said, let this cup pass from me. Let, maybe let me pass. Let, let, this, let me fast of this drink. Let this cup pass from me. And it didn't. He took a hold of that drink. The wrath of God, that cup was the wrath of God. He took it all, and he took it alone. Esther said, have the people pray. And you know what they did? They prayed. They prayed during that time. Jesus Christ goes to his disciples. He says, will you pray? And they didn't. They fell asleep on him. And so he suffered alone. He persevered alone. Esther said, take up the sackcloth. Take up the ashes. Whenever you put on sackcloth and ashes, it implied death. It meant desperation and death. Jesus Christ lost all of his clothes. He was stripped naked, and he took up the cross, and he suffered alone. Esther said, if I perish, I perish. Jesus Christ said, when I perish, I perish. And yet, he came with courage. And yet, he pleaded for us. He says he was glad to do it. He was satisfied to do it. He obeyed in full. There was no argument. There was no argument. He said, not my will, yours be done. There was no fear of losing his glory. He had already left it behind. And then he said, my death, the hour of my glory has come. The time of my glory has come. What he's saying is, it is time for me to die. That was his glory. You know why? Because he was identifying with his people, the people he loves. You identify with the people you love. When you're married and your spouse is sick, you identify with that sickness. Anybody you love, you identify with them. Jesus Christ looks at us. It wasn't just a pity. He identified with us. And so as a result, I'll tell you how, to the extent that he identified with us, he took on the condemnation that we deserved so that we could have the favor that he deserved. Not at the risk of his life. Esther said, at the risk of my life, I'll do this. If I perish, he says, no, at the cost of my life, I will do this. When I perish. And so he went all the way to the cross and he died. And he he didn't just die, he was crushed. He was crushed by man. And when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Esther's saying, what if the pardon is not given to me? What if I don't get the golden scepter? I will be out. I will be forsaken. Jesus Christ says, I, why have you forsaken me? He said, I am out. 
I am forsaken. Jesus Christ, the Bible says that he made atonement for us. That means that he stood before the throne, a much more powerful throne than Esther stood in front of, the throne of the universe, the throne of ultimate power. Before the ultimate power, before power itself. And the Bible says he earned that favor for us. How does that shape us? How do you apply something like this? I'm going to close with this. A few very quick points here. When Mordecai says, you might risk your life, but if you don't do this, you will definitely die. What is he implying? He's saying whether you help or not, either way, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. That's life. Life is going to suffer. But for a Christian, the suffering is not intended to destroy you. Look at Esther. Through her suffering, through her recognition of who she is, it made her brave. It made her stronger. It made her compassionate for other people. It made her humbler. It made her freer. Think about this. If you are brave without humility, you become incredibly obnoxious and annoying. We have a lot of Christians in this country who are incredibly brave but not very humble, and that makes them very, very arrogant and very, very obnoxious. Everything's a fight. Everything's an argument. You're going to impose your, faith, you're going to impose your faithfulness for that matter, and on top of that, there are times when you're going to fail. And so not only are you obnoxious, when you fail, you're going to, you know, because your fears are going to take over sometimes. And we're all going to, we're all weak, so you're still going to fail. And as a result, then what's going to happen is on top of that obnoxious arrogance, you, there's going to be guilt, and there's going to be shame, and there's going to be a brokenness. And you're going to try to cover over those things, and you're going to compare yourself with other people, and you're going to judge them as a way of making yourself feel better about yourself. And you know what's going to happen? As a result of that, it's going to make you incredibly angry, and it's going to make you bitter. And the church is full of those people. The church is full of that. You're going to lose yourself. You're going to lose other people. You know why? Because you're trying to be Esther. You're trying to be like Esther. Esther is just an example to you. But you lack humility. On the other hand, some of us, we're very humble. But we're not very brave. And you know what that does? It's going to make you a coward. And so you're going to live fearing other people. You're always going to want their approval. You're always, going to, you're always working to gain their approval. And you're never going to be able to take a stand for what you believe, what you value. You're never going to be able to take a stand for other people who are hurting and broken. You know why? Because Esther is just an example for you. You're just trying to be like Esther, but you lack courage. So either you're going to lack humility or you're going to lack courage. If you over-adapt, it's because you're afraid. You know, you lack courage. If you under-adapt, it's because you're arrogant and obnoxious and you lack humility. What does that mean? That means that power and strength and wealth, they still have a hold on you. They still, have, they still control you. They still shape you. But what if you don't see Esther as just an example, but a pointer to a greater Esther? What if you see Esther as a representation, a provision for a greater Esther? Jesus Christ, who wasn't an example, who didn't come as a religious example, who didn't come as a religious leader. He was all those things and more. He came to be your substitute. He went to the cross for you, on your behalf. He identified with you. Then you know who you are. Then you know the worth of who you are. Then you know you have value. Let that truth take hold. When that truth takes hold, there's your security. There's your comfort. There's your worth. 
to the extent that you believe this, to the extent that you take it in, that's your inward counsel. You become free. Your titles, your wealth, your power, all those things, your pedigree, your career, they're not your, they're still important. Don't get me wrong, they're still important, but they are not your identity anymore. Those things will never die for you. Your career will never, ever pay the price for you. You will always pay a price for your career. Everything else apart from God will never die for you. You will always die for those things. But now, if Jesus Christ and his gospel are your worth, every time you look at the cross when you see your worth, you are free. Now you're free. Those things, they become tools that you can use. They become tools that you can risk. They become tools you can even lose. Why? Because Jesus Christ gave up the highest title, the highest power, the highest wealth. And he did that for you. He did that on the cross for you. There's your richness. There's your worth. There's your value. There's your power. Jesus Christ became cosmically poor so that you can become incredibly rich in him. Jesus Christ became incredibly powerless for you on the cross. Why? So you can have his power. The spirit of God resides with you to give you power. The gospel comes. The gospel is the power of God. That's what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans. Then you can be free of the power of wealth, the hold that wealth has over you because you have power. A couple other quick things. Mordecai says, perhaps you are here where you are for such a time as this. Some of you are rising right now. Some of you are ascending right now. You all have gifts. There's not a single person here who is not gifted. All of you have potential. All of you have abilities. It's going to make you uniquely ready to help certain people in the world that no one else in the world can help. Like Esther. That's right. And you have a choice. You can either give, abandon the call then you'll be lost. You might have those things, but you'll be lost. You're, gonna, you're rotting in the king's gate. Or you can be on mission. And you're gonna, it's going to come with risks. But if it comes, life will not make sense otherwise. You're always going to wonder, what if? You're always, it's not just that. It's not just a motivational thing. You'll know. If you're a Christian working in the king's gate, you'll know. You'll know. Ask God. Talk to other people. You know, that's what community groups are for. That's what our fellowships are for. For you to get, seek prayer, ask the Lord, talk to people about these things. What do you think I could be called to do? Or I'm struggling in this tension. What do you think about this? Thirdly, and lastly, Esther says, if I perish, I perish. What she's saying is, I now am empowered to identify with people who are broken, who are poor, who are pretty much dead to society, who can't speak for themselves. Look at who God uses in this text. Of course, God uses clergy. God uses people like me, right? God's going to use ministers and clergy and pastors. But look who God uses in the book of Esther. Is it the clergy? Is it the preacher that he uses? No. God equally uses laymen. Kings, queens like you. That's who God uses. God uses everyone here to do the work to redeem all that is broken in the world. That's your job. 
to redeem all that is broken in the world. If you're fixing up a spreadsheet, what are you doing? You're redeeming, and you are the one that God has placed. That means you've got to do your job well. You have to do well where you are. But there is a greater purpose that God has called you to. Seek that purpose. Live it out. It's not going to come without risk. It's not going to come without risk. All your talents, all your connections, all your wealth, all your privilege, all your education, do those things well, but you are called to live a big life. You are called to live a big life. How do you know that? People say, but Donnie, how do I know? Well, you're here. You just heard me say it, right? You don't think that's God calling you? That's God calling. You read the word. God is speaking truth. Do you hear it? If I perish, I perish. My life is not my own. That means obey. No matter the sacrifice, obey. Give up your life, and you'll gain it, and you'll find it. Let's pray.